What's up, all of you Bible lovers and theology nerds out there? I'm your host, Ian Brown, and welcome back to the Bible School Podcast. We are, at the time of this recording, just a few days away from Halloween 2020, and this is a time of year when the supernatural seems to be on everyone's mind. So, in light of that, I thought it would be fun to take a look at a famous episode from the life of Jesus. This is going to be the Markin account of Jesus walking on water, and the disciples think they are seeing a ghost. As I've mentioned before, I was raised in church, and let me tell you that I have heard many a sermon about Jesus walking on the water. And as a kid, anytime I heard a lesson on this story, the Sunday school teacher or the preacher would always, to my dismay, just gloss over the part about the disciples thinking that they are seeing a ghost. And that would drive me up a wall as a kid. I'd be like, you know, yeah, Jesus walked on the water. That's cool and all. That's great. But tell me more about this ghost thing. Like, what's up with that? Well, this may or may not come as a surprise to you, but in the world of classical antiquity, of which the New Testament is a part, ghost stories were actually quite popular. And as scholars have found and studied these ancient ghost stories, they've realized that there were common elements across the genre. Now, let me give you a modern day example. There are a lot of zombie movies and TV shows that are popular these days, and they all have a couple of things in common. And probably the two biggest um, stock components of a zombie story are, one, the reanimation of a dead body, whether by magic or a virus or whatever, and two, the fact that in order to kill the zombie for good, you have to go for the head. You have to decapitate it, you have to damage the brain somehow, you have to go for the head in order to kill a zombie. So th those are two things that you expect to be part of the story when you watch a zombie movie. In the same way, there were things that an ancient audience would expect to hear in a ghost story. And Mark incorporates some of them into his account of Jesus walking on the water. Mark 6 is where we will find this account, Mark chapter 6. And I will go ahead and read the story up front just so we can have it in our heads as we dig into the details. But before we do that, let me pause for just a second and say thank you for listening to the show. Doing this podcast is one of the great joys in my life right now. I love doing all of the study and the prep and the recording. It's um, it's just a good time for me. I, I have a blast. So thank you for your support. As always, I invite you to subscribe or to follow the podcast if you have not already. If by the end of this episode you think, hey, I really like this episode. I thought this was interesting. Or if there's another episode you particularly like, send it to a friend. We're on Apple iTunes, we're on Google Podcasts, we're on Spotify, um, all the heavy hitters. Uh, we're on a couple other platforms as well, like Overcast. So um, send, send it to a friend. I know for me, I'm much more likely to listen to a podcast recommended to me by a friend or a family member as opposed to something I just see advertised online. So sharing the show with someone you think might be interested would be really, really great. 
Um, one more thing you can do to help the show is to leave a five-star review on iTunes and Apple Podcasts or on any other platform you're using that has the option to leave a rating. That would be a tremendous blessing. So, so that's it for my spiel. Back to the task at hand. Okay, Mark 6. We're going to read verses 45 through 52. And for context, this is right after Jesus has miraculously fed 5,000 people with the five loaves of bread and the two fishes. Out of the NIV, we read, Immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. After leaving them, he went up on a mountainside to pray. Later that night, the boat was in the middle of the lake, and he was alone on land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. Shortly before dawn, he went out to them, walking on the lake. He was about to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. They cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. And immediately he spoke to them and said, Take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Then he climbed into the boat with them, and the wind died down. They were completely amazed, for they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. As we dig into the literary details here, I'll be referencing and quoting from an article titled, A Ghost on the Water, Understanding Absurdity in Mark 6, 49-50, by a scholar named Jason Robert Combs. I'll read the title one more time. A Ghost on the Water, Understanding Absurdity in Mark 6, 49-50, by Jason Robert Combs. This article was originally published back in 2008 in the Journal of Biblical Literature, but it's easily found online. I came across it on um, academia.edu, so you can find it there if you'd like to read it yourself. I will say, though, that it is scholarly. Now, I am myself not a biblical scholar by any means, but I was able to get by. If you have at least a year of Greek under your belt, or if you even have some software that can help you with Greek words and phrases, then I definitely recommend reading it as it is quite fascinating. So let me quote directly from Combs here. This is how he starts off his article, quote, in Mark 6, 49 and 50, the author dramatically defines the disciples' miscomprehension. Miscomprehension is being very charitable here, I think. But the author dramatically defines the disciples' miscomprehension of Jesus through the insertion of the absurd, the belief that a ghost could walk on water. Exegesis of the pericope of Jesus walking on the water is enhanced by an understanding of ancient beliefs about ghosts as described in tales of hauntings and similar phenomena in Jewish, Greek, and Roman sources. By identifying in this ancient literature characteristics common to the Markan account, one may detect how Mark initially establishes the expectation for a phantasmic appearance and then diverges significantly to emphasize the disciples' misconstrual of Jesus' messiahship. End quote. Essentially, what Combs is saying is that by including certain details into this account, Mark is setting it up 
to read like a ghost story. If you read the article, Combs gets into what some of these details are. Now, a ghost, or a phantasma in the Greek, in both ancient and modern consciousness, is the spirit and or soul of a deceased human being. So a ghost is not a god. A ghost is not a god like you would think of a god in Greek mythology, say. A ghost is not a demon. A ghost is the soul of a deceased human being. Now, unlike the way we think of ghosts today, we might think of them like, um, like Casper, the friendly ghost, who almost glows in the dark, it's kind of luminescent. In the ancient mind, ghosts were thought to be pale, even shadowy. Now, they look the same as they did in life. They retain that resemblance, but they're just kind of hard to see. Now, according to Combs, ghost stories or stories about a haunting specter typically happen at night, either in a dream while you sleep or in the darkness when you're awake. This is important to note because in Mark, every episode in the life of Jesus up to this point that has dealt with the supernatural realm has been an exorcism. There are two of them that are narrated, one in chapter 1 and another one in chapter 5, two accounts of Jesus driving out an unclean spirit and they both seem to have taken place in the daytime, in the light. When we get to Mark chapter 6, the writer becomes very specific. Verse 47 says, later that night, the boat was in the middle of the lake. So this is a time when ghosts come out. Nighttime, it's dark. But remember, ghosts are pale. They're not luminescent. They don't glow in the dark. They're shadowy. They aren't easy to see. So they only come out at night, and they aren't easy to see. So again, thinking back to the story, Jesus goes out to the disciples just before the dawn. Some translations will say that this happened at the fourth watch. So it's still dark out. The sun has not come out yet, but its rays are just starting to peek out and shed some light on the situation. An ancient literate reader would recognize this as the perfect time for a ghost sighting. It's still night, it's still dark, but there's just enough light to catch a glimpse of something should something be out there. It's primetime ghost sighting conditions. And when the disciples do see what they believe to be a ghost, they react in fear. And that is another common motif in ghost stories, both ancient and modern. Ghosts inspire fear. That's kind of the whole shtick. That's the whole point of a ghost story. Why else would you sit around a campfire and swap ghost stories, right? To get that, uh, that chemical reaction, that rush, that adrenaline rush from being scared. That's the whole deal. So Mark has included three components common to ancient ghost stories in his account of Jesus walking on the water. These three components are these three stock elements of ghost stories that Mark has incorporated are the nighttime setting, the low light conditions, and the fearful response from the disciples. Now let me read directly from Combs' article again. Quote, Mark presents several themes typical of classical ghost stories before diverging in a significant way. It is night, the time when there is at least the threat 
of phantoms looming. Jesus sees the disciples struggling to cross the lake against the wind and begins to walk toward them as light from the dawning sun has barely begun to illuminate their surroundings, the perfect time to sight a phantom. Yet it is not the nighttime hour, nor the dimly lit sky to which Mark attributes the disciples' misconstrual of Jesus. Instead, he implies that their misunderstanding comes from seeing him walking on the sea. Mark suggests that the disciples thought that Jesus was a ghost when they witnessed him doing one thing that ghosts absolutely cannot do, walk on water, end quote. So Mark is dialed in, is what Combs is saying. Mark is dialed in. He knows the literature of the ancient world. He understands how you would write a ghost story and what you would have your ghostly character be doing. And it's not taking a stroll on the water. Yet that's exactly what Mark has Jesus doing, walking on the water. Now here's the fact of the matter. Ghosts don't really have anything to do with the water. In fact, ghosts are probably anti-water in the ancient mind. And Combs will give several examples in his article, but I'll just pick one to illustrate the point. Quoting from the article again, Styx, the most famous of the waters that separate the living from the dead, is described in the Aeneid as hedging in the dead, barricading them into their rightful place. He goes on to quote a passage from Virgil's Aeneid that reads, It's dreary water enchains them, and sticks in prisons with his ninefold circles. Virgil also describes the means by which the dead enter their realm, since they are unable to walk on water. Charon must ferry them across the river. Of course, it is only the properly buried whom Charon will ferry, the unburied remain on the side of the living to haunt. Okay, there's a lot of mythology there that we're kind of just glossing over. I understand that, but I hope you caught the point. The dead are unable to walk on water. They are unable to walk on water. They have to be ferried across the river. And the Aeneid is just one of several examples. An ancient literate reader would look at Mark 6 and say, this has the feel of a ghost story. You have the right setting, the right conditions, the right reaction, but it can't be a ghost story because ghosts just don't walk on water. They just don't do that. So why in the world do Jesus' disciples think he is a ghost when he's doing the one thing that ghosts don't do? We'll go to another quote from Combs for the answer. He writes, The Jewish and Greco-Roman audience, familiar with the sort of ghost stories recounted above, would have been particularly dumbfounded by the disciples' misunderstanding. If, in addition to this, one considers the research of Yarbrough Collins, who's another New Testament scholar, then the disciples' misunderstanding becomes even more shocking. Yarbrough Collins, as noted previously, previously in uh, the article, reviews a wealth of Greco-Roman sources that describe divine men and gods walking on water. With so many prominent accounts, Mark's audience would certainly have understood Jesus' water walk in terms of divine manifestation, 
yet the disciples in Mark do not. Okay, back to me talking. Here's what Combs is getting at, I think. Anyone reading Mark in the first or second century who knew anything about this kind of literature would know that Mark is describing a god, not a ghost. Mark is describing a god, not a ghost. Gods or divine beings are the ones who walk on water, not ghosts. What would have been so obvious to Mark's original audience went right over the heads of the disciples, the very people who had been with Jesus. One more quote from Combs as we wrap up. In Mark, the disciples' insistence on believing the absurd seems to emphasize, to the extreme, their failure to believe in Jesus. This is exactly what Mark records. After Jesus identifies himself, Mark describes the astonishment of the disciples, their lack of understanding, and the reason for that their hearts were hardened, Mark 6, 51 and 52. The disciples' lack of, understa of understanding has long been recognized as a Markan theme that appears throughout the gospel. Here it forms a striking narrative, portrayal of cognitive dissonance. The disciples clearly want Jesus to be something that he is not, to the point that they are willing to believe the absurd when Jesus approaches them as something much grander than they had imagined. Gods and divine men walk on water, ghosts do not. But when the disciples see Jesus walking on water, they believe the impossible rather than the obvious. Mark's original audience would have understood Jesus walking on water in terms of divine manifestation, but the disciples miss it because their hearts were hardened. And why were their hearts hardened? The Bible says it's because they did not understand about the miracle of the loaves. That's verse 52. The New Living Translation puts it this way. They did not understand the significance of the miracle of the loaves, and their hearts were too hard to take it in. One commentary, Barnes Notes on the Bible, has this to say about it. Quote, their hearts were hardened, their minds were dull to perceive it. This does not mean that they were opposed to Jesus or that they had what we denominate hardness of heart, but simply that they were slow to perceive his power. They did not quickly learn, as they ought to have done, that he had all power and could therefore allay the storm, end quote. So the disciples, they weren't hardened of heart like a judicial hardening in terms of, um, for example, say Pharaoh in the Exodus, where uh, he sets himself up in opposition to God and God strengthens Pharaoh's resolve. He hardens Pharaoh's heart in order to accomplish his purpose in bringing the children of Israel out of slavery, out of Egypt. So it's not a judicial hardening in that way, but the disciples being hard of heart means that they were dull to perceive. They were slow learners. They're taking a little too long to understand things about Jesus that they should have understood a long time ago. So let me leave you with this thought. 
the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 should have revealed who Jesus really was to the disciples, and they should have recognized him in the storm. But their hearts were hard. They were slow to perceive to the point that they were willing to believe something absurd over something obvious, a ghost walking on water instead of a god. Their vision of Jesus, their perception of Jesus was too small. They thought they knew who Jesus was, but their image of Jesus wasn't even scratching the surface. So let us learn from that. Many of us have encountered Christ in very real, very significant ways. We all have testimonies of how we came to saving faith in Christ. And many of us have received physical healing through trusting in Christ and standing on his word. My prayer is for our hearts to not be hardened so that when the winds of life are against us, we don't think we're struggling at the oars alone in the open water with a ghost hot on our trail. Because if we feel like that, our vision, our image of Jesus, who we think he is, it's way too small. He's bigger. He's grander. He's not a ghost. He is God. So may we be tender-hearted and quick to recognize the presence of Christ in our midst that we may take courage and not be afraid. Well, that's all I have for this episode. I hope you enjoyed it, and I hope that you recognize the importance of considering the ancient world in which the Bible was produced. As I said at the beginning of the episode, I've heard countless sermons about Jesus walking on the water. But I hope this episode illustrates for you how studying the Bible in the literary context of the ancient world brings a depth to it. And you also see just how much of an effective communicator that the biblical writers, in this case Mark, just how effective of communicators they are. Like, they do what they do really, really well. Even if you don't know the ancient stuff, you don't know these ancient literary contexts um like it's very obvious that these biblical writers do what they do really well how much more when you can read the bible in light of its own cultural and literary context right it's just it it blows the mind so i We're going to continue to do episodes like this as time goes on, but for now, let me just encourage you to get in the Word, get in the Scriptures, because they are far more fascinating than a lot of people give them credit for. Well, I think I'm going to end it here. Thanks again for listening. I look forward to being with you again on the next episode of the Bible School Podcast. Until then, be blessed.